0: take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, as we uh, continue our walk through the book of Ephesians. uh, The leaders of the American Revolution found themselves faced with a most daunting task. Uh, They were going to lead a rebellion of ragtag, small, independent colonies against the most powerful army of the most powerful empire on the planet, is the British Empire, Uh, but, but first these colonies would have to be convinced of the necessity of joining together and rallying around one vision and one mission. You see, the colonies had been established from the beginning with their own sense of autonomy and independence, and the leaders of the revolution knew that unity among them was absolutely essential. And so, for this reason, you had leaders like Ben Franklin and uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson commissioned to develop a seal uh, around which unity in the colonies could be fostered. It became the official seal of the United States. Uh, You can actually find it on the back of uh, the dollar bill uh, on our currency. And on it was written an interesting Latin phrase, e pluribus unum. E pluribus unum. I wonder if you know what that means. It means... Out of many, one. Out of many, one. Unity in diversity. There was a rallying cry that despite the differences among the colonies and many other ways, there was an undergirding unity that bound them together that was superior to the differences that they had. And that common unity around a single mission, a single goal, uh, it was, that was more important than their differences, That laid the foundation of strength for the war to come. That phrase, e pluribus unum, out of many, one, really should be the motto of the Church of Jesus Christ. The church is a collection of ragtag individuals, ex-spiritual outlaws, ex-spiritual orphans from different races and different cultures and different backgrounds. The church is about as diverse as a group as you can get. And unlike the American Revolution, the thing that binds the church together is not rebellion against a king, but submission to a king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're continuing this morning our sermon series called Identity Matters, as the book of Ephesians reveals to Christians who they really are in Christ, uh, what, what their true identity really is. And this is critical because who you think you are Has a profound impact on your life. It has a profound impact on what you do, how you live, how you treat others, uh, the things that are important to you. And the things that we are seeing in Ephesians are radical, paradigm shifting revelations from God about who you really are. And one of the things that we are learning is that Christians are not just uh, part of, uh, uh, are not just random, isolated, heaven bound individuals. Instead, Christians are part of a large Larger family of people adopted into the same family, sharing the same heavenly father, and awaiting the same inheritance, and knowing that should have a tremendous impact on how we treat other believers in the church. Now, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Uh, we saw some amazing things And, and if those things are true, if God has chosen us, if God has adopted us, if God has redeemed us from slavery to sin and Satan by the blood of Jesus, if he's forgiven us of our sins, If he's changed our hearts and made us into a new people, if if he's indeed taken people from every ethnic background and situation and culture and has formed a new humanity with Jesus Christ as the head of that new humanity, if all those things are true, then then Paul tells us here that it's going to change how we treat one another in the local congregation, in the first few verses of chapter 4, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, Paul tells us that we are to treat one another with humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering, and we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit that's come about through the gospel. We should be a people that really reflects that phrase, e unum. The verses we're going to look at today, Paul's going to show us that the purpose of our unity is is not just so we can feel good about the church that we are members of, but that it's absolutely essential for God's overarching plan for the church. So with that background in mind and with your Bibles open, please read with me Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 1 to get some context, and then we're going to read on down through verse 16. Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every, every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy and inspired word And we pray that you would work through the hearing and the teaching and the collective meditation on your word this morning. Your Holy Spirit has a word for Harbin's Community Baptist Church this morning. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that Paul wants to show us this morning as we think about unity, is the foundation of our unity, the foundation of our unity. So our world is is a fractured and divided world, and everybody knows it, regardless of their spiritual background. There's a lot of angst in the culture today about uh, societal divisiveness, and it's not uncommon to hear people talk about unity. You hear politicians talk about it. We've gotta come together. We've gotta be united you hear about it in in, in pop culture, in in, in media. Uh, I remember some of you who are kind of in my age range or a little older might remember that song from John Lennon called Imagine, which was imagining just kind of a, a world where we're all getting together and being one. And for many people, unity in and of itself has become a virtue. But I think it's important to realize that Actually, and this may surprise some people God isn 't interested in unity just for unity 's sake. Let you think about this. The folks at the tower of Babel were united, weren 't they? I mean they were really united. they were all together, and guess what? How did, how did God feel about that? God was displeased with them, and the reason why is because their unity was rooted in a rebellion against God. It was a unity that was totally disconnected from the plans and purposes of God. And so God cursed their unity by undermining one of the main things that unites people, and that's their language. He confuses their languages, and he scatters them, and and, uh, through the scattering of those ancient rebels comes the different people groups, the different cultures and tribes and languages. And here in, in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is holding up a new kind of unity that God is bringing about. And he tells us that what that unity is to be centered around. Look with me at verse 4. <clears throat> he says, There is one body. Now, uh, what is he talking about there when he says there is one body? Because you think about it, there are, there's, there are thousands of churches all over the world. Even just here in, in Decula, there are a lot of churches. So what does Paul mean when he talks about there is one body? Well, well, here Paul is talking about what some theologians call the universal church. Remember, Jesus didn't say, upon this rock I will build my churches. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. He's thinking about the universal church, which refers to all believers in all times and in all places. This is what some call the invisible church. And there is a unity we have with all believers across time and geography and history and denominations. As I'm sharing this message right now, I know that there are many believers watching me through this video in many different places, in Gwinnett County and in Barrow County and Maybe may, be, may be even those who are, who are tuning in who are out of state maybe even a believer halfway across the world will stumble on this broadcast if you're a believer no matter where you are if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ if you are a real Christian then all of us are united even though we're separated by many miles sitting in our homes watching this on our cell phones or laptops or whatever we're all bound together now how is that? how, how is that the case? well look at what Paul says next He says there is one spirit. And this is very important because this one spirit dwells in all believers. Not just lively, charismatic believers, but mellow, low key Baptist believers like many of us. Uh, Romans 8 says that if you don't have the spirit, you aren't even a Christian because it is the spirit who brings about the new birth, who takes the sinner and regenerates him and makes him alive to God and helps him to believe. And Paul's logic is that since there's only one spirit as opposed to multiple spirits, likewise, there's only one body. And then look what Paul says next. He goes on to say that you were called to one hope, one hope, because the thing that separates believers from everyone else in the, in, is, is that everyone else hopes in themselves, Uh, everyone else hopes in their careers, or in relationships, or in money, or in not getting the coronavirus. There's a a, a lot of fear out there right now over this pandemic. And, And of course, wise caution and precaution is a very good thing. Uh, That's why almost every pastor I personally know Is having online services like this Listening to the counsel of our government and health officials Nothing wrong with that But for believers, what's at the center of our hope? What's at the bottom of it all for us? It needs to be different than the world Uh, Ultimately our hope is not in a vaccine It's not making sure that we are stocked up on non-perishables On on toilet paper (laughs) Stocked up on, 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 on all the things that we think we need to help us prepare for whatever apocalypse that we think is coming our way. At the bottom of it all, for the believer, we ultimately have just one hope, right? And that is God and His plan and His purposes and his salvation. And so, the believer awaits with eager expectation the hope that Paul talked about back in chapter one of Ephesians, chapter one, verse 10, that hope that in the fullness of time, God will reconcile or unite all things to Jesus Christ, where the universe will be visibly ordered in proper relationship to and submission under Christ. Verse five, Paul goes on to say, there is one Lord. Now, that's Jesus. And this idea was radically countercultural and revolutionary in the first century, uh, where cultural and political pressure would push every Roman citizen in the empire to say that Caesar is Lord. And, and it's radically countercultural and revolutionary today, where every instinct of the unbeliever is to crown himself as Lord. But the true believer receives and declares Jesus to be Lord. And so this one body of Christ is unified in recognizing and embracing the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so naturally from that flows Paul's next declaration. There is one faith. Sometimes people will say, well, all religions are basically the same. And and can't we just all kind of come together and affirm all belief systems? And the answer is no, no, no. The body of Christ is not an interfaith entity. There is only one faith, and it is grounded in Jesus and the content of God's revealed word. This is why uh, when the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons knock on your door claiming to be Christians, you actually have the right to tell them that they are not. I don't know uh, for Harbin's members. I don't know if you noticed this on the on the Harbin's members Facebook page the other yesterday. Um, uh, Pastor Jarrett had a couple of Mormons uh, visit. Uh, With him and and he had an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus Christ. My understanding is is that uh, he's invited them back over uh, next week for supper, so that's good. And you can pray for that, and you can pray for that conversation. You can pray that those Mormons would see that they are actually outside of the one faith that Paul is talking about here. Some of you recently have had um, contact with Jehovah's Witnesses, um, uh, Jonathan Hoffman. I think Jonathan Little has uh, as well. And uh, again, wonderful opportunities to tell people uh, about the one truth true faith. Um, these other groups uh, promote teachings that are contrary to the faith delivered to the saints. Uh, they have a different Christ and they have a different gospel. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians that if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let them be accursed. Why? Because there's only one faith. And therefore, these aberrant groups are are not part of the one body that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. Next, Paul goes on to say that there is one baptism. That makes sense, because if there's one Lord and one faith, then, of course, there's one baptism, which is a testimony of your faith in that one Lord. And then, in verse 6, we're told that there is one God and Father. There aren't multiple fathers. We're not a polytheistic people. And since there's only one Father, that means there's aren't, there, there aren't multiple families. There's only one family of God. And that brings us full circle to Paul's main point, that there is only one body. A body formed through the Spirit who regenerates, grounded in a hope in God, centered on a submission to the Lordship of Christ, tethered to the faith once delivered to all the saints, expressed through the ordinance of baptism, finding its source and purpose in the Father." And it is through the church where God is creating a true unity. It's through the church that God is reversing the curse of Babel. If you recall in Acts chapter 2... Uh, It was during the religious celebration of Pentecost, a celebration of the harvest from God. Uh, It was during that time when the inauguration of the church began, with God gathering a harvest of people from different tribes and nations and languages and cultures. He's gathering them together all in one place at Jerusalem. And what happens? God pours out His Holy Spirit. And when the gospel is preached... Everyone hears the message in his native language. And so there is a universal comprehension of the apostles' teaching. What's what's going on there? there? There's a turning back of the curse of confusion and disunity at Babel. And, and the people in mass hear and receive the gospel and receive the spirit and they submit to the lordship of Christ and they all express that through baptism, giving glory to the same father. As the, as the spirit dwelled in the Old Testament temple, now the spirit comes and dwells in this new temple which consists of believers from every tribe and tongue. And these people who were formerly divided are now united uh, people of different cultures and shades of skin and languages all of a sudden are united in one god and one lord they're all part of the same family as jesus says anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother some some christians downplay the unity of the universal church As a matter of fact, some Christians tend to only care about their own exclusive group and their own church, and some will look down on other churches because they're different. And I never want Harbin's church to become a church that is proud and arrogant towards other churches. Never want you to be that way. I always want you to appreciate and thank God for the universal church, recognizing that God is doing a legitimate work outside of Harbin's church. We're not the only game in town. Uh, Even in churches that in some ways may be different than ours, do some things differently than we do, and churches with whom we may even have some disagreements with, uh, but would nevertheless share with us one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. That is, is what ultimately binds the global universal church together. Now, while some folks downplay the universal church, there are others who downplay the significance of the local church. Uh, there are those who would say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm part of the universal church, so I really don't need to be a part of a local church. Um, I can just just come and, and go to a church casually as I feel like it, or maybe not even at all. Uh, I don't need to serve. I don't need to participate. I just prefer to be anonymous. Maybe, maybe occasionally just hear some messages that help me and my family. But Paul's about to show us here that no, you actually can't do that. Because what is the local church? It is the visible manifestation of the universal church expressed in local congregations scattered all over the world. And by the way, it is not lost on me that this local church, Harbin's church, isn't all together in one physical place right now. Uh, but, the, but the fact that you've got many churches that are encouraging their members to tune into their streams, not, not immediately going to other broadcasts, and expecting their folks to watch all at the same time so that we can all hear the word together simultaneously, to pray at the same time, to worship at the same time. The, the reason churches are doing that is because they know the significance of the local church. Uh, that we're going to find ways to stay connected as a larger body even when we're not in the same building. Because as important as the universal church is, the majority of the New Testament is written with the local visible church in mind. You know, most of the New Testament can't even obey, be obeyed apart from being deeply involved in a local congregation. If you, if you have your Bible still open to Ephesians 4, you can back up to verses 2 and 3. Uh, and just kind of look, scan what Paul is saying there. You can't walk with humility and gentleness and patience, lovingly bearing with people who irritate you. You can't do that to Christians in Tanzania. You can't, you can't do that with people in the universal church that you don't know and you aren't doing real life with. You can't eagerly seek to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace with people that you aren't in, in a committed relationship with. It's why church membership is so important. And, and, and I believe that that, that verse there, that where Paul says being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, that verse is, is gonna be really applicable in the days ahead for Harbin's church. Because if we aren't all getting together in persons on, uh, person on Sundays for a while, it's gonna be really challenging to maintain that unity and it's gonna be really easy to drift apart. And so I am, as your pastor, concerned about that. And we need to be thinking about that. We need to be praying about that. I am. I, I want us to be on guard against the devil who may use this current situation as a means to drive a wedge of disunity between us through, through us not being together as much or through us even having different ideas about the best way to respond to coronavirus. Uh, there could be a whole bunch of different ways that, that the devil could use this as a situation to drive a wedge between us at Harbin's church and, and disrupt that unity. And so I'm trusting that the Lord will help us to be proactive and creative in the days ahead to maintain that unity because the unity, the oneness of the universal church is meant to be Seen by the world in the context of life in the local church, and this unity is meant to be expressed in a church that is diverse. Which leads to the uh, the second observation is is that we discover that the the diversity that is in our unity. When you get to verse seven in Ephesians four, it, it's a bit striking, actually. Because up until this point in chapter 4, Paul's been focusing on the corporate unity of the church as a whole. Uh, And then after highlighting the oneness of God's people, he suddenly shifts in verse 7, where the focus is not corporate but individual. Look at verse 7. He says, The grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's interesting. John Stott wrote, "...that although there is only one body, one faith, and one family, this unity is not to be misconstrued as a lifeless or colorless uniformity. We are not to imagine that every Christian is an exact replication of every other, as if we all have been mass-produced in some celestial factory. On the contrary," Stott says, "...the unity of the church, far from being boringly monotonous, is exciting in its diversity." This is not just because of our different cultural temperaments and personalities, but because of the different gifts which Christ distributes for the enrichment of our common life. Unquote. That was John Stott. And Paul says, grace was given to each one of us. Paul here is not talking about saving grace. He's talking about what you could call serving grace. In fact, Paul talks about this grace... Uh, as he considers his own ministry. You can flip back a little bit to chapter 3, verse 2, where Paul refers to his own divine commission, and he talks about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Again, that's not saving grace, that's serving grace. And in that instance, it's the grace that God has given Paul to allow him to serve the church as an apostle. And turning back to chapter 4, verse 7, Paul reveals that it is not just he that has been graced by God in this way. He says that grace was given to each one of us. Uh, This means that every single person who has received God's uh, saving grace has also received God's serving grace. God has given grace to each one of us. That's what Paul is telling us. He's given different members of the church different spiritual gifts, different spirit-empowered abilities to serve the church. And so, for example, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, "'For by the grace given to me, "'I say say to everyone among you "'not to think of himself more highly "'than he ought to think, "'but to think with sober judgment.'" each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So we're one body, but God has uniquely graced every Christian to serve in different ways. Or uh, consider 1 Corinthians 12. This is the classic text on spiritual gifts. And in this chapter, Paul beautifully weaves together unity and diversity. He says that there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then for the next several verses, Paul goes on to list examples of the different kinds of gifts God gives to members of the church. Everything from gifts of teaching and administration and helping and other gifts. And I don't think the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 are exhaustive. Uh, it's not an exhaustive list. I know that because in Romans 12, there's gifts there that aren't mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, like leadership and giving and service and mercy. And uh, the point is, is that God has intentionally designed diversity into the body of Christ. Not just a diversity of race and culture and personality, but even diversity in regards to the special ways that God has wired individual believers to serve the church. Everyone serves, but everyone serves differently. In the middle of uh, verse 25, this is still in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes that God has intentionally designed this diversity in the body so that there may be no division in the body, uh, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So let's then, with that in mind, go back to Ephesians 4. Uh, The point here is that in the church, there is to exist this amazing unity centered on God, grounded in the fact that through the gospel, Christ has reconciled man to God and man to man. But at the same time, there is this amazing diversity within the church. Uh, The church is is the body of Christ, and like a physical body, uh, the church has different and diverse parts And they're all meant to function in harmony uh, with one another, in agreement with one another, even as they exercise their differing roles and functions. Now, what does this mean practically? It means that every single member at Harbin's Community Baptist Church has some sort of role, has some sort of function. Paul says that grace was given not to some of us, but to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, some people say, well, well, I can't do anything. I don't feel, gi- I don't feel gi- gifted. I'm, I'm useless. F- that's not biblical thinking. Uh, th- this idea where, where the pastor and a handful of people serve and minister in the church and that everyone else sits on the sidelines being served, that's completely foreign to the New Testament. Now, If you you don't know how you should serve or if you feel unequipped to serve or you want to be a more effective servant, well, guess what? That's where my job begins. Paul says that God has given various gifted leaders to the church. Look at verse verse 11. Uh, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Right there, shepherds, teachers. That's talking about people like me, pastors. And, And what did he give them for? Uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So, who are the saints? Well, if you're in Christ, guess what? You are. So, so the work of the ministry at Harbin's church is not exclusively my job. It's not exclusively Pastor Jared's job. The work of the ministry is your job and Jared and I are as 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 shepherds and teachers are supposed to equip you to do ministry and we do that various ways through preaching and teaching and counseling you and praying for you and facilitating various opportunities through the church that will strengthen you as a Christian and give you opportunities for service and it's important to recognize that you don't have to be serving in some official advertised, organized ministry of Harbin's to be serving the body of Christ. Don't think that way. Uh, don't, don't think, well, well, I, well, I don't lead a class, and I don't lead a small group, and, and I'm not on stage leading worship, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not doing what, what Jason and Grant are doing right now in, in the back making this broadcast happen with all their technical expertise. I can't do that. Uh, I, I, I'm not a deacon, uh, so I guess that means there's just no place of service for me. That's not true. In fact, many, if not most of you, will be exercising your gifts in a very informal and behind the scenes kind of way. In fact, you, know, you, you actually might have a teaching gift, but you know what, you don't have to teach some official class at Harbin's. You can exercise that gift to build up the body of Christ through finding someone to mentor, finding somebody to disciple, If you have a mercy gift, you don't have to head up some sort of official ministry here. Just go visit a fellow church member who's sick or in the hospital. If you're gifted in hospitality, you can exercise that gift to build up the church by just quietly behind the scenes going through the church directory and inviting your brothers and sisters in the Lord over to share a meal with them and to encourage them, to love them, to build them up. And by the way if this coronavirus uh, pandemic goes on for a while, that particular gift of hospitality, which is always important, I think it's going to become even more important and absolutely critical for the life and the health of Harbin's church in the days ahead. This may be a moment in the life of the church where the hospitable may shine and give life to the church like never before. You know, even someone who is homebound can serve. You know, one of the, the toughest things for, for my wife, Dana, in her chronic illness has not been the physical suffering, as tough as it is, but her inability to not regularly engage in corporate worship with the congregation. Now, Now, the rest of you, you might think it odd for you to be sitting there in your living rooms watching this service disconnected from other people in the church. For Dana, that's been real life for a while. But God has been teaching her that even in her situation, she can serve the body of Christ. Uh, When she's up and feeling horrible at 3 a.m. in the morning, which is not uncommon, you know what she does? She prays. She prays for you. She prays for needs. She prays for this church. God has graced her in those moments with the faith to pray. And, and, folks, that is just as legitimate as, as serving through teaching a Sunday school class or, or leading worship on a Sunday morning. So, so don't ever say you have no place of service in the body of Christ. Now, this sort of view of, of church life is very different than the common American version of Christianity and the church where Christianity becomes a very individualized thing and a very personal thing. We tend to be very consumeristic about the church. Uh, It it becomes about our happiness, our preferences, our needs being met, us being served. If we don't like our church, we just go down the road and see if the next one meets my felt needs. But Paul here paints a much different picture. Where the, where the church is not like a bunch of rogue individuals just thinking about themselves, but rather each individual is a part of something much greater than himself. And everyone has a part and a function and a service and a role that helps the body as a whole to function properly and healthy. Paul tells us one of the purposes of these spiritual gifts that God has given us goes back to unity. Paul Paul says these gifts and these gifted people are existing for the church, verse 13. uh until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So again, this concept of unity comes up. That's the purpose of these spiritual gifts, not for yourself, but for the body as a whole, to bring about, facilitate unity. It's a reoccurring theme in Paul's writing. There is a unity that God is restoring, a unity that once existed long ago that was destroyed, and now God is reestablishing that unity, which leads to my third and final observation about this text, where we discover the warrior king who purchased our unity the warrior king who purchased our unity. Scriptures are showing us that the gifts that Christ is giving to the church, is giving to us, have come about as a result of Christ's cosmic victory over the powers of darkness. In the very beginning, our earliest ancestors, Adam and Eve, uh, they were created in the very image of God, they in their holiness and love and purity reflected God's image and they enjoyed perfect fellowship and unity with God and with one another. But that old serpent, the devil, lured Adam and Eve away from God and led them into sin against God. And as the virus of sin infected them, that perfect image of God in them was twisted. They were no longer holy and loving and pure, but wicked and hateful and tainted. And that unity they enjoyed with God and with each other was shattered. And so man's at war with God and man's at war with man. That's the legacy of sin. That's the legacy of Adam. And the inheritance of us as his children, as we follow in his footsteps, as we seek autonomy from God. And to be separated from him, Uh, To be cut off from the God of life brings nothing but death. It's why we grow old and weak. It's why there's tornadoes and catastrophic floods and coronavirus. Sin has thrown the whole cosmic order out of balance. But it's a death that runs deeper than the physical, It's a spiritual death that leaves man alienated forever from the hope, the love, the joy, the peace of God beginning now and continuing into an eternity of being forever cut off from the enjoyment of God's presence. That's hell, that's justice, that's what we deserve for our treason. And so, the wicked unseen powers and principalities declared war on God and lured us to join them in their revolt. And we took the bait. They captured us. They killed us. And so it seemed like the forces of darkness won. But our God, our God is many things. He's a God of creation. He's a God of light. He's a God of peace. He's also a God of war. A God who will fight for those he loves God, before the foundations of the earth, had a people chosen for himself. In Ephesians 1, Paul calls that people adopted sons. In chapter 3, he identifies them as the church. In chapter 5, Paul's going to show us that this people is none other than his bride. And and in a great, twisted, satanic conspiracy, the devil, the prince of the power of the air, wanted to kill that bride, wanted to corrupt and darken and twist her to make her join him, destroying her and dishonoring God. And yet, God, the great cosmic bridegroom, the God of battle and war, Fights for those he loves. He fights for his bride. And he fights for his own glory and honor. And folks, those are two things that you don't mess with. You don't mess with God's bride. And you don't mess with God's glory. If you do that, it's over. You just committed suicide. Because if you wage war against God, he will wage war against you. And you will lose. And as soon as the serpent sank his claws in venom into Adam and Eve God announced a declaration of warfare on the devil in Genesis 3:15 he said serpent you will bruise the heel of the woman's offspring but he will crush your head Now what does that have to do with Ephesians chapter 4 Well look at what Paul says about the serpent crusher about the woman of the about the offspring of the woman who would fix the mess that Adam made. Look at verse 7. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul's quoting from Psalm 68. Now, if you read the whole Psalm, you're gonna see that it's a warfare psalm. It's a victory hymn. I read it at the top of the service. And, and Psalm 68 pictures God as a warrior king who's been faithful and defeating the enemies of God's people, protecting Israel uh, from those who would destroy her. And so, the psalmist writes, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. In verse 7, David writes, "O oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, God here is pictured as marching in triumph before all Israel after he's delivered them from captivity in Egypt. And then in verse eight, he says, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Here, the victory procession reaches the mountain of Sinai where the earth quakes Later on, as you read through the psalm in verses 11 through 14, you see armies fleeing before him while his people sleep peacefully before their fires. And finally, in verses 16 and 17, from Sinai, God sets his sight on Mount Zion, And we get an image of an entourage of tens of thousands of chariots accompanying the Lord, ascending up the slopes of Jerusalem in victory. And the psalmist writes, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. In the ancient world, when a king went out to battle, and he would defeat his enemies... He would capture the survivors and he would bind them and lead them back to his city in a procession. This parading of the captured enemies and the reception of gifts of tribute was a demonstration of the king's power and superiority over the enemies. It was a way to exalt the king while completely shaming and humiliating the king's foes. It was a way of saying... I'm superior to and more powerful than these enemies, and they cannot hurt you anymore. They're completely and utterly in my power. And Paul is showing us that the victories and the mighty acts of God's salvation in the Old Testament are pointing us to a greater victory later on, because in his use of Psalm 68, Paul pictures Christ as the conquering warrior king ascending on high with a host of captives in his train. In verse 9, Paul explains that in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. Paul here is referring to Christ's descent from heaven to earth. God becomes man. He takes on the dark powers and principalities that sought to destroy his bride and undermine his glory. He met the devil head on, and Satan and his minions, threw everything they had at Jesus, even death itself, Yet through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus crushed the devil. In his life, Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live. In his death, he paid the price for sins so that all who trust in him should not perish in hell, but receive eternal life. And when we believe in Jesus, his righteousness is transferred to us. So when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees Christ perfection. And Jesus' resurrection is a deposit, it's a down payment or a promise of what is to come for all who trust in Christ. Conquest of death through our own rising from the grave. Jesus has crushed the serpent and his demons, and I love how Paul puts it in Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, Paul has uh, this image in mind of public humiliation and embarrassment as the enemies of God, the devil, and his demons are put on display and paraded before the people as shamed captives. Now, some interpreters believe Paul's allusion to Psalm 68, with the king leading a train of captives, refers not to the demonic powers, but to us. In the sense that just as Israel was held in slavery in Egypt, so we were held in bondage by sin and Satan. And as with the exodus, the overthrow of God's enemies at the hands of the divine warrior king has resulted in deliverance for his people. But however you interpret it, the main point remains the same. God has delivered. God has won. The enemies are thrown down, and to God be all the glory but there's more. Paul not only says he led a host of captives, he says in verse 8 he gave gifts to men. And for those of you who are paying close attention, you'll notice that that actually is a slight change from Psalm 68. In Psalm 68, the victorious warrior king receives gifts. He gets the tribute, the spoils of war, but Paul turns that around and says that Christ in his victory gives the gifts. That's not an arbitrary change. In fact, in Psalm 68, the Hebrew verb for receive can connote the idea of receiving in order to give. Because another part of the victory parades in the ancient world were not just the display of the vanquished enemy and not just the receiving of tribute, but if the king was generous, there was also a distribution of the booty amongst the people. Uh, The king would share the spoils of war, giving gifts to his people and allowing them to share in his great victory. So the image that Paul is giving us is that of Christ returning from a great battle, vanquishing his foes, publicly shaming them. He's exalted on high and he's generously giving gifts to his people so that we can share in Christ's victory. In fact, in Acts 2, the Apostle Peter at Pentecost, right in the wake of the gift of the Spirit being given to thousands of new believers, Peter says that Jesus, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The gifts that Christ is freely giving and lavishing upon his people is not gold or silver. It's the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. And again, Ephesians 4.13 says that the purpose of all these gifts is to build up the body until we attain the unity of the faith. Christ, as the conquering king, is returned from battle and he is sharing the spoils with his people. And these spoils are gifts which will lead to the very thing that the devil originally stole from us. Unity. Unity. A unity between man and God and man and man that was shattered by sin. Jesus comes back from conquest giving us gifts that will be the means of rebuilding what was once lost. And it was not just unity that was lost, but but that perfect image of God that Adam bore before the fall. That was marred, that was tainted. But now, thanks to the victory of our conquering king, Jesus returns from battle with gifts that not only work towards unity, but also work towards restoring uh, that perfect uh, image in us, that, the image of God in us. Look at verse 13. He says, these gifts are to move us along to mature manhood, to move us towards the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we are to grow up in every way into Christ, verse 15, so that we can become who we were born again to be, a people who will be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And so Ephesians 4 reminds us that though God is sovereign, God uses means to accomplish his ends. And the church is not to be passive as we grow to full spiritual maturity. Uh, we're, We're not just to sit around and do nothing. Rather, we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We're to be humble and gentle and patient and loving with one another. We are to be actively using the gifts that Christ has given us, gifts that he paid for with his blood, Gifts that that won for us in uh, uh, in his battle and, and defeat over the evil powers and principalities who once held us in captivity, he earned those gifts for you, and so you have a role and you have a part to play. God doesn't need any of us, but he has ordained that you be a part of his plan to mature the body of Christ and move it towards fullness and perfection. And so, the question you need to ask yourself is, what role? What role am I playing in God's plan to achieve this great and grand purpose for the church? What role am I playing to help Harbin's attain the unity of the faith, uh, to bring this church closer to mature manhood, closer to the image of Christ? Are you, are you playing your part? Are you fulfilling your calling? Or is it more your tendency just to kind of sit on the sidelines, uh, more focused on how the church is meeting your needs and serving you? I truly believe with all my heart that this church will never be all that we should be without your involvement, without every member using their gifts in some way to serve this body, especially now, um, more than ever, during this strange time in our nation. We've got to come together and be united, uh, we're all called to build up this body called Harbin's Community Baptist Church. Maybe some of you have been serving, but maybe this is a good time to ask, are there other ways I should be serving where I'm not? Uh, sometimes we get locked into our own little comfort zones of service while well, I'm involved in such and such, and, and so I don't ever need to do anything else around here. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. Maybe God is calling you to a new ministry, a uh, new means of building up this church. You know, you may have gotten the email, uh, but there's a meal train for the CISO family as Adam was recently hospitalized. Maybe, maybe someone here uh, who's watching uh, has never served through providing a meal before. Maybe God's calling you to do that. Maybe, maybe God is calling some of you men to explore being an elder a pastor here at Harbin's, a, a lay pastor, a, an unpaid pastor, a pastor in this church. You know, just because we hired a new pastor doesn't let everyone out off the hook here. Uh, I don't think we're supposed to have just two staff pastors. I think we need some volunteer pastors as well. Maybe God is calling a man in this church to step up and serve in that way. Uh, VBS preparations are beginning. God willing, this summer, Things will be a little bit more back to normal around here. Maybe God is calling some of you to a deeper level uh, of involvement in that outreach to our community's children. And even with this coronavirus outbreak, God may be opening up other kinds of ways we can be serving and building up one another that we've never thought about before. My point is, is that we should occasionally take uh, take inventory of our personal ministry here at Harbin's, and ask God, is there something more, is there something different that you want me to do? And if you're not sure, talk to me, talk to Pastor Jared. Our calling here is to equip the saints, to equip you for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Our Lord, our great warrior king, fought and bled and died and rose, not just to save you, but to gift you, so that you might play a role in his grand design for the church. And I pray that we together as a church would walk in a manner worthy of His great calling for our good and for His glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the church, this incredible entity that you have created and that you have bought and paid for by the blood of your Son. Father, I pray specifically for Harbin's Community Baptist Church that you will help us in the days ahead to be better servants, to know how we are supposed to serve, to know how we are supposed to exercise our gifts for the building up of the body. May you continue to purge all of us, uh, purge us from from uh, from that sense of entitlement, from that sense of wanting to be served And may more and more you cultivate in us hearts that are eager to serve. You're already doing that here at Harbin's. There are so many wonderful servants here at this church already pouring themselves out, but but can we do more? Father, I pray that you would help us to do all that we ought to be doing and to even be open to new ways of service, new avenues of ministry here at Harbin's Community Baptist Church. Father, thank you so much that your son laid down his life for his bride, so that we might be united to him now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.